Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Please, sir, can I have some more? (laughs) More? (laughs) More beef, more chicken, and bigger noodles. Shall we, uh, shall we talk about some things? How are you? You know what? Can I t- Let me just tell you this. Before you answer that, okay. I would like you to answer under the context of the fact that tonight, this the show we're doing tonight represents our foray into year three of the I next know. one. Three. It's crazy. That's like a that's suddenly a thing. Yeah, you know? it's like it's like what's it? You know, two is a what's that ex- expression? Three is a habit. Two is a accident. Two is an accident. Three is a habit. <laughs> <laughs> what it is? Uh, <laughs> so like, so it's a habit. I guess it is habit. It's officially me. it's a habit. That's what we've done. We've created a new habit. And now I'm going to need a 12-step program to get out. Because <laughs> it's an addiction. That'll it's take happened. years. I am not worried. That's right. Um, so, yeah, three years. So we did our, our birthday, actually, which we didn't say this at all, which we totally should have done this. We our birthday have. was on Sunday, which was just a few days ago. And that was the day we were doing a film board, a very special, very special episode of VSE of the film board, uh, with Steve and, and Tommy Handsome, and and uh, we did Thor, the the Dark World. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've you've heard of that film. So, so bring so we rang in our third year with a good old uh, smack of Thor's hammer. That's right. That's right. Man. What's his hammer's name? Mjolnir. Mjolnir. Yeah. Mjolnir. Not great. Bring him in the new year. <laughs> uh, so I'm very, I'm very excited about this. I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to be n- moving into year three. It's so fun. And to celebrate, we've got a couple of things, a couple of new things. Can we? This is we, we got some updates. Okay. Okay. The first one is, you know, we've we've uh, we talked about the uh, Stitcher smart. Ah, uh, yes. You know about this. Yes. I've heard about it, yes. But if you go to Stitcher, you go to to uh, to the show site, you search for us on the next reel on Stitcher. Um, you now have the ability uh, to listen on the web, which I think you could always do. But it, they've redone their show page, you know, so mm-hmm. you can you can listen easily, you can share it easily, and more importantly, you can rate it and review it easily. And so I have been getting nice. some questions from folks, you know, because we talk all about this iTunes thing, you know, it's really great, you know, great for iTunes. But what about us if we don't use iTunes and we want to rate the show? Well, Stitcher is actually it's another network. It's a great place to uh, uh, to rate and review the show. If you like the show, we appreciate it. If you add it to playlists. 
over on Stitcher and review the show. Give us a positive review and positive rating. And, and like iTunes, you know, the, the more you review it, the more you rate it, the, uh, the easier it shows up for others when they search for, for uh, topics around film critique and movie reviews and things like, the, like we are prone to do. Uh, so we appreciate that. So that's number one, Stitcher, the, the massive update to Stitcher. And congratulations to the whole Stitcher team. They, they did a great job. Okay, that's number one. Uh, number two, to celebrate launching year three, uh, I turned on a Google Plus show page for this show. Much like our Facebook.com slash The Next Reel, uh, we now have a Google Plus page. It's Our, our address is Google.com slash plus, like the plus sign if you're not used to that. Google.com slash plus The Next Reel podcast will get you to our, our show page. And it is so new that, uh, I mean, literally in the last half hour I turned it on. So it's very, very new. But that also, there is a tab on there where you can review the show. You can give us a review there too. If you, a, a review and a ratings, we would, we would sure appreciate your reviews of the show there too. Uh, if you have kind words to say, we would appreciate hearing them there as well. So there, there are now, in addition to iTunes, there are two other places uh, for those of you who, who have kind words to share. We would appreciate hearing that. Google Plus, Facebook.com slash The Next Reel, Stitcher.com. That's fantastic. I think it's good. It's a good way to, to launch the new year. We've got some stuff we're going to post on Google Plus uh, and, uh, you know, the, the blog whisperer, um, the kindly Steve Sarmento, the blog whisperer for The Next Reel is uh, is going to be posting his material there. He's, he is um, uh, a, a, a kind and gentle ruler of our social wonder, media presence. I wonder if he's going to start his own page at some point and uh, start offering people help and he can speak to their blogs when their blog, yeah. blogs get unruly. He should do that because sometimes blogs have been known to get cantankerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He'd be a good one to do that. He would. Bridle them up. Yeah. Uh, so the other, let's see, what else can we do? Uh, give us an update on, uh, we have two things. We, we've gotten some some rambunctious requests we've got somebody who has requested that we review uh the or not i don't even know if it's original but the 1990s captain america film uh and we've got we we have the uh, uh friend of the show rory uh on uh, from uh mexico city who says that we need to review the karate kid and this i think was this was a dare because she listened to the show where we where we weren't quite so kind to um say anything say anything and she's she i think she was daring us to say something bad about a little macho ralph macho and uh and you weren't thrilled with that that was not a good thing for you (laughs) well i I threw down the gauntlet if she wants us to talk karate kid she can uh you know participate in this challenge or this (laughs) contest that we have right now go to itunes leave us a comment and between you know in november december this year we're going to pick one person who leaves us a comment, and they get to pick a movie that we're going to talk about next year. And that would probably be the only way that I think we would, I would want to put Karate Kid into a series. Well, here's the thing. This is what I was going to say to you. This is this is my uh, my pitch. I really love this thing. I love what you've brought up here. And you you may have created a little bit of a monster, but here's what I think. I think we should make, we should just leave four slots a year open. Once a quarter, like once every three months, we just leave a slot open for a user-suggested series <laughs> show, and that'll be our user series or our like listener series, right? Wow. What do you think? Oh, once I, a quarter, because I think we're going to have more more than that of people who want to do it. <laughs> that seems pretty. Uh, 
Come on, man. You got, we got 52 we'll movies a year. <laughs> I think we could spare four. Let's try the first quarter. Of see how it goes. <laughs> you're right. I'm calling you out. I think you're scared. Let's see. We're going to end up talking about Karate Kid. We're going to talk about Captain America. And so it is. And Endless Love 81. And Endless Love 81. Here's the thing. I think that. <laughs> and it... that will be. Year three will be the last year. <laughs> <laughs> I think that these the, the, the listener series may end up being a series of four episodes that are each about 12 minutes long. But that's okay. <laughs> we talk about a lot of trailers. We talk about a lot of trailers. That's good. <laughs> uh, I'm excited about it. How's the... Uh, How's the Instagram guess the movie Pony Prize challenge going along? This was this was a did anybody get it this week? Yeah, somebody uh, got it yesterday. I knew once I threw the image up yesterday. I, with the movie this past week, it was Old Boy, the original uh, uh, Park Chan Wook film, and uh, that Spike Lee is remaking, and his version comes out later this month. The um, I, I thought this would be a fun one to do because of that. It's got some amazing visuals it's it's based on a graphic novel and so the, the visuals throughout the film are really stunning it was actually really hard for me to just pick the images for this week and i was tempted to double it up every day but i decided not to and it was really tough for people until i knew yesterday's image was gonna for some people probably give it away um showing that hand grabbing for that octopus really kind of that did it yeah that <laughs> Did it? That was all that uh, Hunt Thug Nasty needed to uh, to know that that was old boy. Hunt so. Thug Nasty, congratulations! Hunt Thug Nasty in the uh, hunt. Yeah. That's right. He pulled it out and uh, he won. So he is entered to win our pony prize this pony week. Pony prize. That's fantastic. Have you seen that? Have you seen Old Boy? No, I've never seen it. That's why well, I had no just... clue. Like I, I had no clue. Let me just tell you: be prepared for the octopus scene. Because. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of comes up on you, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess he's doing that. <laughs> That's and horrible. Yes, it really it really was pretty horrible. <laughs> I'm really interested to see how Spike Lee handles scenes like that in his remake. Wow. I So I'm looking at the picture right now, and... Uh... I don't Do even know. What, what, I don't even know what to make of it. Like, there's an octopus. See what What's I, he doing? Do you see what I wrote uh, in the comments after Hunt Thug Nasty guessed it? Oh yes, I want to eat something alive. And it's an he octopus. Does. And he does wow. on screen for us to watch in all of its slithering glory. I mean, you and I tried. Yeah, octopus. yeah. Well, it, it's but Not it, it wasn't quite that big. <laughs> Like the, it was a little tiny piece of a tentacle. It was it was not a whole octopus. That's a thing. But some of these the images that you posted this week were there. It was it's uh, vibrant. They were trippy. They were very trippy. <laughs> yes, indeed. I love it. I yeah. love it. And so in the hunt for the pony prize. Congratulations. Uh, let's see. Uh, Get what a new else? one starting tomorrow. So. Do, do you, you have the film in mind already? You're ready. Got it go? all set, ready to go. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm loving this. I don't know about anybody else if they have, but I love it. Yeah, it's kind of fun. I wish I could win, although <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I think you're pretty. You're like I said, you're a tough master when it comes to these things. <laughs> Man. 
okay, what else do we have to cover? Do you have anything to cover before we jump into our uh, trailers? So as as you guys know, we do have our Letterbox account, letterbox.com slash the next reel. What we're going to be doing, what we've actually started doing now, and what we're going to do next year, once Pete and I put together the list of movies we're going to talk about next year, we have on the watch list on our page on Letterbox. we have all the films that we're going to be talking about uh, between now and the end of the year. And then next year, once we figure that out, we'll fill it in with all the films that we're going to talk about next year. So if you're anxious to... Uh, pre-watch movies that we're going to be talking about so that you actually have seen it before we actually uh, have the show air, you can now know what we're going to be talking about and uh, you'll be able to check it out and uh, yeah, you'll be all caught up. I like that. Yeah, it'll be a nice way to uh, you know give people a chance to to you know have it uh, have it. Uh, in their heads before they jump in and we spoil the heck out of it. So let's do it. Let's do trailers. This week, I my trailer of the week. I'm going to go ahead and go first, Andrew, because uh, my trailer of the week. I'm going to call it a redemption trailer. Wow, that's strong words. It's heavy because you know I told you last week, or maybe it was the week before. I don't remember. I told you I watched Les Mis, and I was not uh, thrilled with Russell Crowe. In that film, I was not thrilled. I don't know if I'm going to be thrilled with Russell Crowe in 2014's Noah, but the trailer hit this week, and it looks like a giant animal film with raining chaos in the form of fire and brimstone. And you know, if you know anything about me, I'm a big fan of uh, fire and brimstone, uh, just general destruction movies. I don't know, you probably don't know that about me. So you're wanting to see... So this is like 2012 for you, but taking place in the good old days. I'm not in the good old... That's exactly... I, I think that's what Noah called it. <laughs> <laughs> One day, my child, we will look back on these as the good old days. <laughs> I... Uh, you know what? I, it just... You know what? This is... This looks like just a big scale... Uh, a, a giant scale CG movie, and I love, uh, you know, I generally like these things. And so I'm not, you know, it, it, here's here's why I'm not quite looking forward to it, because there are reasons I'm not looking forward to it. Uh, Darren Aronofsky is is a, is one of the, the reasons I'm not Whoa. looking forward to it. Whoa. What? Whoa. <laughs> right? I just threw down <laughs> film school. Oh my goodness! No. Right, oh, I did not like sad. the fountain. I did not like Black Swan. Well, I didn't like the fountain either, but uh, Black Swan was great. Oh please! Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, no, I almost I picked Mila Kunis's new trailer as uh, as my trailer this week. I haven't seen week. what. Which one was that? It's called Tar. I haven't seen that one, Mila. Yeah. So, um, so this is uh, Darren Aronofsky. Is uh, he's is uh, Noah? This is a uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it this may be his his biggest. I guess arguably, Black Swan had some pretty uh, elegant effects, mm-hmm. um, but this is certainly an overt effects film. And yeah, uh, it, it is. It stars. We've got uh, we've got Emma Watson. We've got Logan Lerman. Jennifer Connelly. Oh, Jennifer Connelly. Uh, and Anthony Hopkins, uh, the All Father himself, uh, joins Russell Crowe 
in uh, in Noah comes out March twenty eighth, two thousand fourteen. I am just and thrilled that I picked a trailer that is not already out yet. That's you know, <laughs> and then and then don't forget you've got all the green alligators, the long neck geese, the humpy back yeah. camels, and the yes. chimpanzees, the cats, and rats, and elephants. <laughs> Go ahead, think of an animal. But there are two. Born. <laughs> but the loveliest of them all that you know, I was a little disappointed to see that there were no unicorns in the trailer. I thought this was based on Shel Silverstein's poem. <laughs> I love that you have it. Uh, you have it right on the tip of your tongue, though. That was good. Yes. That's points for that. There's lots All of right. points for that. Pulling out the old shell. Come on. I know. Dropping a little shell. A little shell bomb. All right. Uh, so that's my that's my trailer. This is one. If you haven't seen the trailer, head over to thenextreel.com, uh, and uh, you'll see it right on the front page. Look at the. It's it's right there in the in the notes for this episode. This very episode, the current episode, front page. You'll see my trailer, and right next to it, you'll see Andy's trailer, which is my trailer is Dear Mister Watterson. Oh, this made me cry in my heart. I know. I know. You know, growing up with Calvin and Hobbes was a delight. It, it was like a reflection of myself as a child, and it was a reflection of the child that I wanted to be as a child, and just everything about it was just struck to a core of kind of me growing up, and I always loved the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. This documentary uh, looks really interesting. It's uh, this filmmaker, Joel Allen Schroeder, or Schrader, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his last name, but he is a uh, he made, decided to make this documentary where basically he goes around and interviews lots of other uh, comic strip people in that world, like uh, Berkeley. What is it? Berkeley breathed, Berkeley breathed. You're I've the one who knows pronunciation of things, except for him. I've never, I've, I've always been nervous to say his last name because I always feel like I'm going to say it wrong. Hmm. And I'm sure I, I'll say it, you know, breathed, 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 breathed. There, I said all the variations. <laughs> <laughs> and I probably got it wrong every time. Anyway, uh, he, of course, did the, um, uh, like, a wish for wings that work with, uh, what's that penguin's name? I can't even remember. The, uh, anyway. uh, yeah, you're going you're gonna to get me. Uh, I, I oh, you're talking about the... the the other, yeah, Berkeley's comic strip. Oh. What was his comic strip? The uh, Far Side. The Far there. Side, right? No, not the Far Side. No, that was not the Far Side. It was the one, <laughs> the political one, right? Uh, uh, I don't know. Anyway, whatever his was. Uh, this is this is gonna make me crazy. I know it's totally gonna make right. me crazy. But anyway, it was. He's uh, not really the point uh, of this. We'll 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 come back to whatever it is. Outland. That's what it is. What? Outland and Opus. Opus. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Uh, in Bloom, Bloom County. Bloom County. Yeah. Uh, it was Bloom <laughs> County, Andrew. Yes. Out anyway. loud. It was the political one. That's the one I was thinking of. Yes. With the penguin and the cat. And the cat. Yeah, that was always coughing up furballs. Anyway, he's one of many people that, that uh, Joel interviews in this film, talking about what... Mr. Watterson brought to the world of comic strips with Calvin and Hobbes. He did it for, I think it was about 10 years that Calvin and Hobbes was, uh, that he was creating these for the, for the um, comic strips. And it created this magic and it created kind of this whole thing that everybody gravitated to and was drawn to. And it really kind of stepped up the level of the playing field for the world of comic strips. And um, it, it just looks like a great 
documentary that kind of taps into that search for one's youth and, and trying to kind of explore, you know, you know, what made it so great and everything. So I very much am excited to see this film. I'm very much um, uh, wanting to pull out all the old Calvin and Hobbes strips again and, and start reading them all again after watching this trailer. So, Oh, totally. Yeah, and that's so. This is a documentary that's opening like right now. It opens uh, today, the day this show goes live. Um, I don't know how wide it is, but definitely check it out if you're a Calvin and Hobbes fan, or if you're if you're too young to have ever seen Calvin and Hobbes in the comic strips. Check out some Calvin and Hobbes books and read them, and then watch this documentary. Well, and it, it's live in uh, iTunes, I believe, on the. Is it streaming yeah, already? Yeah, it's on the 15th. I think they said it was going live on the 15th. Okay, so yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yes. That's my trailer. That's your tra- fantastic trailer. I love it. Yeah. Uh, very excited for that one. And now we're going uh, we're gonna, to we're gonna test, uh, test for the red belt. Time up. Think he has a handicap? No. The other guy has a handicap if he cannot control himself. Breathe. You know the escape. Breathe. There's always an escape. Your check bounced. My check? The martial arts supply. I can't make the rent. You have no cash. There's one rule. Put the other guy down. Just calm down. I'm calm, man. I'm calm. You calm down. Just wanna have a drink. Why'd you come out alone? You looking for trouble? What happened? Bad boy jumped on a movie star. What about you? Nobody knows who I am. A man distracted is a man defeated. It's an invitation from Chet Frank. You train people to fight. I train people to prevail. Tell them your training method. The fighters before a fight. Three marbles. Each fighter has a two and three odds of choosing the white marble. White marble's a pass. What if he picks the black marble? Black marble's a handicap. Who imposes the terms of the battle will impose the terms of the peace. You stole my idea. You can't copyright an idea. He has a document of his training regime that he's used for many years. You want to make some money? Fight on the undercar. It's worth a quarter of a mil. Competition is weakening. What about the fighter's family? What do they eat? The fight is fixed. We pick who gets the white marble. Who gets to pass tonight? You. I'm ending the charade. Mr. Flair, I need to talk to you! You think you're going to the ring? You're going nowhere, Mike. You're going nowhere. There is no situation you cannot escape. You know the escape. I've been so nervous about talking about this trailer with you. Or talking about this this movie with you. Uh, Why? Because you hadn't seen it. So you know what it means, though, now? What? Is that you and I are going to have to have our, our own MMA match. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be the next real throwdown. IFA, MMA, battle for the belt. Uh, okay, so we're doing... This is the second in our very brief series of, of films that are written and directed by uh, the multi-talented David Mamet. Um, multi-talented and curmudgeonly, David Mamet, wielder yeah. of, wielder of words. Uh, he is a curmudgeon. He, he is a curmudgeon. Is... Now, I, I feel like you should go first. I, do you think? I mean, I, I, I know how I. I'll feel. go first. I I'll go like, first. Okay. Yeah, I'll go first. All right, go. I, I liked it. I, I. This was a really interesting film because. You know, we had talked about con films uh, last week, specifically The Spanish Prisoner, but also had mentioned how David Mamet was kind of drawn to these different 
uh, con films, you know, House of Cards, Spanish Prisoner, Heist, even looking at something like Ronin, he really likes this world of, of the con. And even you look at some of his other films, like Glengarry Glenn Ross, there's a little hint of, uh, you know, a crime happening that, that you're kind of following along with. And this was an interesting film because even though it's kind of this, this I don't even know if I'd call it a fight film, it really is kind of more of a character study that takes place in the world of mixed martial arts. Um, uh, but it still has this uh, level of kind of cons and all these games that people are playing. Maybe because he's, he's also kind of, there's a little bit of an indictment against Hollywood in this film. It, it kind of brings out that kind of world of the con forward because it, you know, the way that he's playing Hollywood, it does seem like a world of cons and people who are just out to kind of screw you over. Um, so it felt very interesting to me that watching this, I'm like, gosh, this, he really loves these con stories. It seems to be something that he's really uh, drawn to and adept at. And looking, you know, researching for the film and stuff, I did find that um, inspired by this movie, Roger Ebert coined a new genre, which he calls The Twister. And that's a movie that's less identifiable about uh, what it's about than how it's about it. Specifically, one that constantly plays with the audience's expectations. Twisters don't twist only at the end. They pull one rug from another out from under our feet until we're astonished by how many rugs we were standing on. Sometimes it's almost impossible to keep all the versions of reality straight. Sometimes it's a futile exercise because we realize the film could continue indefinitely. But when a twister is in the hands of a master like Mamet, it can be devilish and ingenious. This film, after it was done, I stepped back and I tried to piece it in, together in my head as to what was happening, as to how our protagonist, uh, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor's character, how he got into this situation that he was kind of forced to fight. And I could see the pieces there, but I could not for the life of me figure out how it all worked. And I felt like that was a failing on the part of Mamet putting this together, and it bothered me that it felt um, like what we were talking about last week, The Spanish Prisoner. When I actually stepped back and thought about it, I was disappointed. I was like, gosh, I, I felt like this should be something that stands up by itself. Like when I look at it and repeat viewings, I want to see that everything lines up. But then you get to the end of the film. And even though I felt unsatisfied with how the film played out, um, with all the twists and turns and everything, the way that it ended, I was really satisfied. So that's my experience with this film. And so you, you only watched it the one time? I watched it the one time, okay. and then I then I listened to Mamba talk about it in the yeah, comments. Yeah, I am so glad to hear you say that. Even uh, even though I think your experience in the middling kind of the middle of the film was was uh, fair to middling, I'm I'm so glad to hear that overall it was a good experience for you because for me, it is this is a film that um, has gotten consistently better. Every time I've watched it, and I was I, I was kind of hedging last week how excited to get about this film that we were doing it because I, uh, in watching it this week, I found myself just still riveted by it. Now, yeah. uh, that's that's I, I think that's because in in some respects it is a 
it is a perfect film. And, and I don't mean that saying that there, there's nothing wrong with it, but that, um, that it is, to me, structurally surprising every time I watch it. It seems like every segment, it's not even, it doesn't even feel like acts in this film, right, in, in, in terms of the, the structure of it. Every time you think you get a handle, as you were saying, you think you get a handle on what the film is, it's not. You think immediately it's a fight film, but it's not a fight film. Then it's it's sort of a thug film, but it's not really a thug film. Then then clearly, as you say, it's an indictment of Hollywood film, and but it's not a, an indictment of that. Last you know, not very long. Then it's a con film. You know, he clearly was there. There was a con pulled on him, and he had to piece that together and realize that this sort of level of betrayal as a result of the con in his life was was uh, you know it was significant. But then it didn't. The con was ended up being sort of a MacGuffin because what the film really was about was a character redemption film. It was a film about watching this guy uh, stick to what he believed in at his very core uh, and and allow us to watch uh, that in spite of uh, every cultural force uh, acting against what he believes in, uh, he was ultimately rewarded for his truth. Right. And I find that closing sequence is, it, it, it is a gut-wrenching sequence when he bows uh, and accepts the red belt at the very end with no explanation and particularly no sound, no cheering applause. It is the most sober uh, uh, power, uh, the most sober uh, appreciation of that redemption that that I feel like I've, I, I you know can think of in in film. You know, I mean, you look at films like um, what was the other Russell Crowe, uh, Ron Howard film, the Cinderella, uh, Cinderella Man, Cinderella yeah. Man. Yeah, you got these other fight films that 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 uh, end up being this sort of uh, saccharine celebration of of redemption, and and this one I feel like was. Uh, in, in fact, some of the most human. Well, you know, it's interesting um, speaking to that point. I mean, I, I can see why this film didn't do well at the box office. It's, you know, people have an expectation in sports films, and uh, they really want them to be those kind of Cinderella stories, right? That's what makes them work so well. This is... In a way, it is a Cinderella story, but it's not done in a way that people expect. And so I can see why people, um, it, it's funny, reading about how they marketed this film, they had two marketing plans, or two marketing directions that they took with it. One was marketing to kind of the art crowd at all the high art theaters and stuff like that. The other was marketing it on like Spike TV and everything, marketing to the uh, the MMA crowd and, and the fans of that uh, ultimate fight night, uh, ultimate fight champion, right. UFC uh, crowd, marketing it toward those people. Because, I mean, it does have a lot of those um, uh, mixed martial arts champions and all those people in the film and you know they're fighting their commentators their trainers they're just all throughout the film they're helping put the film together and all that sort of stuff and so but i just don't think that the, that those crowds are necessarily going to get into this film as much as maybe uh mammoth was hoping for it's not your typical uh, you know, Jet Li fight movie or something like that. It's not it's, the Expendables. No, it's, my goodness, it's, it's not. not. 
it's not something that you can go and just kind of turn your brain off and watch a bunch of people just, you know, doing no. up, pulling out their mixed martial arts and just kicking butt and, you know, having a lot of fun with it. This yeah, is really well, and Mammon himself, movie. Mammon himself said, "This is, you know, I'm not making a fight film, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, he, it's it, it it was it's clear in the first 15 minutes that this isn't a fight film. And one of the things I like so much about it is when you see guys like Randy Couture and and um, uh, Ensign Inoue uh, in this film, just how seriously they are taking, um, you know, and sort of soberly they're taking the their roles." Uh, in, in a film where the fighting is not central. Uh, and, and I think case in point, uh, you know, the final fight, not to jump too far ahead, but I think the final fight is a, a beautiful example of this, right? It's a, it's a grappling uh, kind of, of fight, but ultimately when it comes time for the final blow where he is you know he runs up the wall he sees his his old master you know in the audience and and uh runs up the wall and does the flip and and ends the fight right we hardly even see the run up the wall it is like yeah. a half a second clip uh, uh, cut uh so we we are in, in that way we are experiencing that fight that happens kind of in the alleyway between uh the ring it doesn't even take place in the ring and i think that for me is very much a metaphor of the way fighting is treated in this film it is as much a sideline kind of experience to the real story as the ring is to this hallway where the final fight takes place. And I, I think that, that, as you say, I mean, that's risky from a marketing perspective because it really, you know, it's it's telling you, you need to focus on something elsewhere. You know, you're watching my hand over here, but what I need you to look at is is way over here in my other hand. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but for me, it was it was very powerful. And again, it gets to that that same story of, uh, you know, it's, it, it's that, that same feeling of... Um, uh, similar, I, ironically, what I get from uh, The World's End... Which uh, hit iTunes this week in pre-release, mm-hmm. uh, and is still great. Um, it's it's that experience of you know coming to terms with what it means to uh, to sort of be a grown-up or to be a man, uh, you know, in air quotes, um, and, and to come to terms with one's own kind of stance in life. And um, sort of for me, I I walk away from this film feeling really energized with with. Um, the, the reward at the end. I think this is this is the film uh, that I to me celebrates David Mamet's use of language better than any other. I would I would say it is it's the film that matches performance to his his use of language better than any other film uh, in in the catalog that I have experienced. And there are some I haven't seen, but I would rank this higher than in in terms of performance to Mamotism higher than Glengarry Glen Ross. Wow. See, I, I, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I like the film. I certainly have problems with it. I, there's definitely some problems I have. And you've, you're, uh, you have the benefit of having seen it a number of more times than right, I have. Right. Um, so for me, Glengarry Glen Ross still stands out as uh, a you know, much higher level. And uh, uh, I really love that film. This one, I feel like I, I need to see it some more. I mean, I do feel like I have problems with this film. Specifically, I felt the whole conceit of how uh, Emily Mortimer's character, um, her character, Laura, the, the way that that whole 
scene when she first comes into his dojo and ends up shooting the uh, kind of coming into possession of of Joe Collins's gun and shooting the window out. I felt all of that was a little uh, just it felt very forced to me. The fact that this police officer, I, I, I could see why he left his gun there if if, you know, um, uh, Mike Terry Chewie's uh, character was like grabbing him, showing him, you know, this stuff with his harness and stuff like that. But the fact that he's leaving it there, this distressed woman is coming in. I feel like if he was a cop, he would have immediately picked his gun up and not leave it sitting there. The way that Mike was so forceful and demanding of take her coat, take her coat, take her coat, take her coat. It, that to me struck going back to the Spanish prisoner of being way too repetitive to, because something's going to be happening. And then the, it just all of that rung not true for me. It felt very plot heavy and I didn't like all of that. I liked the developments from that. I just didn't like that uh, the way that that particular scene played out. I, you know, I would agree with you on two a couple of points in there, uh, but I, I want to expand on them. Uh, I agree with you. I can't think of, and I don't know a lot of police officers, but I know enough to know that they, they at no point would that gun end up sitting on that right. banister <laughs> ever, ever, <laughs> ever, especially after they went to the trouble cinematically to show us him unlocking the trigger guard right yeah i mean that was something that just would not happen right exactly um, that that she would come in and shoot the window i i did like and i liked it because in each of these major characters or in each each of these secondary characters lives uh a thing happens to them that is massive. And to us, as we follow Mike Terry's path, that thing happens. It seems like we're supposed to really make sense of it and try to figure it out. But it is immediately, I mean, nearly immediately minimized to nothing, right? Right. We get the, and it starts from the very beginning when Emily Mortimer is driving to the pharmacy. We think, you know, what are we supposed to make sense of these pills? She needs her, what we come to assume are some sort of anxiety pills or some, you know, Valium or something to, to uh, help her deal with what essentially is, I, I, you know, PTSD or some sort of, you know, post-traumatic yeah. experience from, from being raped. And this is... And and to her, those experiences are massive, and yet to us, uh, those experiences end up being minimized so we can move on to the next one. And the next one ends up being, you know, uh, Officer Joe, and he ends up—we uh, follow Joe just for a little while, and the things in Joe's life are monumental to him. He is—and they lead to— him committing suicide, and that suicide right. ends up being uh, marginalized so that we can move on to the next big thing to to yeah. you know and and so in that respect, I think this film is risky dramatically because it sets our expectation up uh, that these big things are going to be subject of the film, and the result is that not about any of them right. And I I find that really uh, rewarding to me as a as a viewer. This one this one works well for me in that respect. No, I do like those elements. That's the sort of stuff that I I think is interesting in the context of the story. The way that these um, things that are happening in each of these people's world. I mean, they play as things that are people are having to deal with. Is there a reason that that Joe ends up committing suicide? 
you know, I think a lot of people would look at anyone who feels that they need to commit suicide as a way out as unnecessary. There's other ways you can work through that. But in his world, I mean, it, it, it does seem like there's, there's some level of dignity. It's, it, you know, it's almost like speaking of, you know, Harakiri, like I was talking about last <laughs> week, it, it's like, he has uh, shamed himself in a way or something and it's like the only way he can redeem himself is by doing that or something you know it's 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 interesting that he takes it so far where that's yeah. how that's what he sees as his way out and i am curious um just how mamet decided to play those i i think it's a really interesting way to choose to write a story where there's these big elements all in all these different people's lives that come together and then get dropped so quickly because they're just elements in people's lives that they're dealing with. They affect the plot to a certain extent, but in no way are we dwelling on them. In a way, it's like that's backstory for the character. Emily Mortimer, her rape story, it's not necessary for the story except for the fact that it it puts her into a situation where when this cop touches her, she freaks out, grabs the gun, and shoots the window out. And, it and that's helps all her. we need to know. And well, then it and it helps her. She has that moment of of bonding with Mike Terry, where he kind of helps her cathartically through that by essentially putting her in the same situation and then teaching her how, uh, you know, how to kind of now get out of it and yeah. bringing those two characters together. And then that's it. We don't ever come back to it again. And then it's like then from that point on, she's. She's uh, lawyer Laura and, you know, driving forward, doing all that. And then the way that you can get a great sense of character growth in her and you can see how she's really changed over the course of the story at the end when she slaps him. Because this is a guy who is teaching her you can't, there's always a way out. You can't back out of situations. You have to fight through. And here he is backing out and basically walking away from this. Mm -hmm. And... I love that that scene plays with no dialogue. It's from a distance. We see him walking through the parking lot or the parking garage. She comes across him. We can see that they have a conversation and then she slaps him and that's it. That's all we get. That, I mean, in a way was almost better than some of the mammoth dialogue that he gives us. The fact that he delivered it completely silent. I was just like, now that is the sign of a writer-director who knows how to use words and knows when to use words and found that moment where it was it was more appropriate to use no words than to write a scene full of words. Absolutely agree. Absolutely yeah. agree. Um, you know, it, it's funny. The, the same sort of applies to... Um, to, uh, well, I mean, the same really directly applies to everybody that comes into, into uh, Mike Terry's um, sort of entourage, right? I mean, uh, whether they they are working for him or against him, in some way, you sort of have this this um, this metaphorical train of people that come in and out of Mike Terry's life. And by the end of the film, the pressure of the the people that are hanging on his coattails, whether they need something from him or they're trying to help him, uh, is is just too great and and I love that feeling of intensity when he finally loses it and is walking down the sort of underhall below the arena and and just you know using his skills uh, in a way that uh, you know against police and security guards who are all trying to restrain him and he just he just walks through them like you know 
I don't know. What, what, would one walk through soft butter? <laughs> That's gross. Uh, but you know what I'm. I, you know what I'm seeing. That that uh, I, I think that the that release of pressure is something that you want to see him do uh, all through the film. And I think that for me is credit uh, to uh, Chewie's uh, Chewie IGO four's uh, portrayal of this character. I think he does that skillful yet pent up uh um you know masculine uh protagonist mm-hmm. so well uh, yeah it's it's so much more soulful yes like i really connect to him as a character because and i i think in the large part it's because this is a character who has dedication to his moral grounding that he's based in and you see him as the as this whole element of the story progresses and he's he's trapped in a situation where basically he has to go into this uh you know the uh part of this tournament and compete even though he it's completely against all of his morals and everything because he feels that it's it's already going to be kind of I can't remember what he said specifically, but it's um, when you compete, you, what does he say about like when you compete, you're already, uh, it's already fixed. You're, you're diminishing your skills or I can't remember what he says, but it's something super wise. So it's a very Yoda esque sort of thing. And, and he sees it as he's, he's basically um, crossing that line. And because he has to, he feels, he sees no other way out. And he's going to have to, uh, you know, demean himself in order to basically survive this whole situation that he's found himself in. And the way that the moral, like like I was talking about earlier, that when she slaps him and he realizes that there's a way out and he has to uh, step up and do this thing at the end. And it's it's really smart. And it's something that I completely didn't expect to happen. I was really kind of expecting it to somehow just be more of a you know victory in the ring sort of thing and somehow it helps him through this or whatever i I really wasn't sure where it was going but the way that it developed and the way that he stood up to uh this whole group of the the fight uh promoters and and the the fighters themselves in order to prove that being honest and and pure is is better than just doing this for the money and trying to uh, like throwing a fight because it'll be it'll draw the crowds and it, and then when you go back the next time and and you fix that next fight so that you you come out the victor and it draws even more money and all this stuff I mean it, you know that's not what it's about and I I loved that whole thing and that's why that end moment was such a powerful moment well and that you know I want to not to focus too much on that last moment but the trick of the eye that he plays in in that last that last long cut um, is, is I think, really a testament to, to Mamet's grown expertise in the medium, right, as a director. Um, what we have seen, insofar as we've talked a lot about how, you know, Mamet can hit you over the head with a, a theme, right, or a line or something. He really just beats you up with stuff he really wants you to know. And that first sequence with the gun and the window, and okay, it's, it's, it's there. But in the end, we see, in my opinion, just enough of the old man in the audience 
to yeah. understand that there is some respect there. There's a, a brief conversation in the in the back office about, you know, you brought the old man for a fixed fight. Uh, but But ultimately, we see just enough of the old man such that we understand the re- the relationship of reverence but then that final cut comes and we see uh we see Mike motion for the microphone to be lowered so that he can walk into the ring and say something right. and his eyes you think are focused for an impossibly long time on the microphone. And I don't know about you, but my reaction to that was, oh my gosh, this is his emotional kind of final speech. He's going to say right. something and it's going right. to be in that microphone and it's going to be so, it's going to be powerful and overwrought mammoth. And okay, fine. I, I get it. I get it. But what steps into the, as he, he begins to bow before we see what, what he's bowing toward and mm-hmm. it turns out right. it's the old man presenting him with with the red belt which is uh you know as we've it, this was this was the the thing you know this was the gun on the mantelpiece that you know what about the red belt she says early in the film well there's only one of those and we don't hear anything else about it we don't get any education about it we don't get anything all we know is that's a belt of reverence and well uh, and i and i think what we learn is because what does he say about the black belt the, the black, black belt, belt is is a sign that you are that you are uh ready to represent the uh the, the school as a teacher and you right you can become a teacher and you yeah. can kind of teach yourself and what i thought uh, and i didn't know what the red belt meant until the very end and then i thought okay so the red belt then means you are ready to represent the sport because you you have shown a purity of uh you know the purity and honor of what the sport represents and it's it's almost like you know the top level and there's right. something about that the way that that whole thing was portrayed well right and, and what that's what i love so much about it is again it's that it's that use of just enough right it's enough mm-hmm. that we we know that we have this incredible uh sense of reverence for that belt we don't need to know why we get to imbue that with whatever we think it means i mean for some yeah. it may be oh he's the red belt he has the power to turn off the sport now uh you know i mean you can do whatever you want but he can fly he can fly <laughs> he breathes fire <laughs> oh. uh so but but what I love so much about that moment is that it ends, uh, in some ways, that presentation of the belt uh, protects Mike from his monologue. It protects Mike from thinking too hard about what just happened, and it yeah. just rewards him for who he has become. Yeah, the, I love that. I do, too. One of my other problems that revolve around that, as much as I love that moment— it did make me question, okay, so how did the old man know that this was fixed? That, I mean, because from the old man's perspective, all he sees is as the fighter, and I'm forgetting which, uh, is it uh, Rod, Rod, Rodrigo Santora? Bruno Silva. Yeah. yeah. He's coming out. Uh, no, actually, no, that's the brothers, John Machado as Ricardo, who's the fighter. I get those as, confused. Is that John Machado? Yeah, Ricardo John Machado. Silva, because they were both brothers, right? Yeah, they're brothers. Yeah. So Machado is is coming out to fight because he's got this. He's the the uh, the title card in this fight coming up against uh, whatever the other guy's name is, and he's going in to do this fight. And and Mike comes up and stops him because he does you know the the whole fixing of the fight and everything. This is all it, after their conversation. Once they start fighting, the cameras kind of come up and film them. 
fighting and it's projected all around the house. So from the old man's perspective, all he sees is he's sitting there enjoying the fight. The, the, the fighters coming up to fight. And all of a sudden, Mike Terry comes up and starts fighting him in the aisle. And there's no, he doesn't hear anything. He doesn't really understand why this fight is happening. All he, all from his perspective is he sees these two fight. He sees Mike Terry, um, uh, knock this guy out and then go up to, to speak. So that was a problem that I did have. Like when I think about it too much, it's like, how, how does he know that Mike Terry was there representing the purity and the integrity of the sport? Well, you know, I actually didn't, I, I mean, I, I feel like I have thought about that and, and, um, I don't, it, you know, to me, uh, it was a sign that the professor actually was already aware that the fight was fixed, right? Mm-hmm. That he was, he was a fixture and he was there as a, as a place of promotional honor and that his act of rewarding Terry was, uh, a, a slight to uh, all of these, you know, false kind of um, uh, promoters who are promoting a rigged fight. Like I, it, to me, it at least to me, it makes the movie better. Uh, thinking that the professor is the professor, the guy knows things. Yeah. But then, then my question would be like, if he does know, then why did he show up in the first place? Yeah, I don't know. old people do funny things. so uh, yeah so i mean i still have problems with it and that's that's the interesting thing about this film is even with these problems like when i think about it i I don't it doesn't line up for me like tying all these like how did tim allen's character uh tie into this whole thing and uh, you know it's like i can't quite put my finger on all of these puzzle pieces it doesn't quite make sense to me but i still found it compelling i think it's just because it was a really interesting look at uh, kind of what you typically would expect for a fight film. It did feel like a mammoth fight film in which he's yeah. just like, I'm going to give you a fight film, but it's not going to be about, you know, just the victory at the end. It's going to be a moral victory. Yeah. And it was really, it was interesting because of that. And I do like it because of that. The, uh, you know, I think we've talked a little bit about uh, Chiwetel's uh, IGO Force performances. Mike Terry was fantastic. Tim Allen was in it. He was great. I mean, he was a very sort of, he played a very serious role. Uh, and yeah, and I, again, I, it was, it was a, a, you know, he was portraying issues that were huge in his life, these motivating issues that drive him to go to a bar unprotected in order to get a beat down. Uh, those were massively important to him but ultimately not important to to Mike Terry's path and I think Tim Allen did a great job in that film in that arena. I think there is if there is one um I think significant hole in the in the film that I have heard people complain about. Mm-hmm. And that don't bo- doesn't bother me uh, you know particularly but maybe it should is that Tim Allen's con bit right that that mm-hmm. you know the there's the you know, between Tim Allen and Joe Mantegna and, and the whole, you know, uh, the, the collusion around stealing Mike Terry's secrets right. um, is uh, uh, clumsy. Right. Uh, dramatically. Like, we we don't quite understand how does Tim Allen know enough about Mike Terry's teaching styles, you know, early enough to be able to orchestrate this massive kind of... Uh, theft of his teaching philosophy and 
yeah. intellectual property. Uh, you know, I, I that's that's one area where I find I'm not, I'm just going to choose not to think that hard about that one. Yeah, well, and that falls into the whole thing how I can't put my finger on these puzzle pieces is because it, it likely they don't make sense. Like if you try to actually put this puzzle together, it's not going to be an actual like picture of the Statue of Liberty. There's there's no real end image of this puzzle when you put it together. It just is a it's several different puzzles that kind of all got mixed into the same box. Yeah. And you're never going to be able to put it together because they don't go together. And I I think that's one of the the problems of the film. I and going back to what I was saying at the very beginning, it does feel like Mamet really likes these con stories. He likes these crime stories that have these twists where, you know, people are stealing things from other people and there's all these ulterior motives and things that are going on. And you, it, you, as you start kind of tracing, it's like, oh, that's interesting that that person was there because of this and this is happening because of that. And it leads you down these chains of events. But then when you try to put it together at the end, you realize, oh, well, it doesn't actually make sense. Because, see, I thought Tim Allen, I kept asking myself, so is Tim Allen... Did they want him to go there purposefully because they knew that Mike was there and Tim was going to get a beat down, but they were doing it so Mike could save him and then they were going to oh, trick Mike to get into the fight. Wow, see, you went I way was, back. I know. And see, well, that's the thing. It's like yeah. I clearly had a lot of puzzle pieces in my box that I was trying to figure out how, to, how they went together. So well, that and, was and the, for me. I think the the whole Frank angle, Chet and Zena Frank, uh, Zena Frank, his wife, played by Rebecca Pigeon, your favorite actress ever. Um, yeah. She that angle, the the fashion designer angle, uh, you know, with with Alice Braga playing uh, uh, Mike Terry's wife, Sandra Terry, uh, I, who I love. I think Alice Braga was great. But there was this whole, you know, I borrowed thirty thousand dollars from a loan shark. Well, we needed her to be indebted to a loan shark in order to motivate Mike Terry. Uh, to do things that he would normally not do, that he is, he's, you know, he's right. on the record saying, I will never fight in the competitive arena. Well, now he kind of has to. Yeah. Um, and, and so we needed that. But that, you know, why Zena Frank would lead her on with, when she is already, uh, you know, stated as a, a fabric, you know, she's written a book on fabrics, and she discovers this fantastic fra- fabric from Sandra Terry, and, and she, you know, uh, leads her to believe that they're going to place this giant order, she has to borrow the money, she orders the fabric from Brazil, and then they go change all their phone numbers? Right. Like, that that's a puzzle to me, and I that's the one I just can't... I, I mean, it's sort of heartbreaking to think about because it seems so clumsy to me, too. Like, that, I don't understand why they... I don't understand why they even need it, uh, that, that whole angle. Like, that whole fashion designer thing, I, I don't... I don't get it. Well, and the nature of that, it's like... I mean, were they that tied together between tricking him... And then also tricking her to help trick him right. by doing this whole fabric thing. I mean, it really seemed like these people were going to ridiculous lengths to try to get Mike to fight for $50,000. Right. Could, could you have made this movie without <laughs> Alice Braga or Rebecca Pigeon, their characters, yeah. at all? And, right. and have exactly. any significant loss in, in what this film is all about? Yeah, it totally would be fine. I think stuff. it would make it better. Yeah. Even though I really like Alice Braga in particular, I think she's she is a I, I think she did a great job in this film. I really like the the sort of um, the contrast to 
um, Mike Terry's character. And, and I think the one uh, sort of dramatic function that she serves, probably the most important one, is the final betrayal uh, when Mike discovers that she's, you know, she, it turns out, is actually sitting in the audience with the Franks and and mm-hmm. turns out everything's fine there. Well, she she actually was, was and has part, no part guilt. of yeah. Well, she was that she was somehow part of the the collusion, right? And and she has no guilt that that the police officer is dead. Yes, no, that was <laughs> she like, doesn't feel bad about that at all. Of course so. not. Well, she comes from a, a you know these <laughs> this family of you know criminal uh, fighter yeah, promoters. So it's yeah. really it really is kind of a. Uh, it's an interesting familial situation that she's coming from, right. but I, it, it did strike me as a little out of left field when that all happened. It's like, wow. Right, right. Uh, okay, so, you know, in terms of, uh, let's say, other angles of the film you want to talk about, we've... The, we um, talked a little bit about cinematography because we've we've talked about Robert Elswit before. Um and uh, you know, uh, what was it that we did? We did. Um, uh, oh goodness! I just had it on the tip of my tongue. The town. Yes, the town. That's when we talked about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was it. That was yeah. the one. But he's also done a lot of uh, films that I really love: The Minister of Goats and. Uh, and he well, he also did blood the, and. Yeah, and he, and he did do the Born Legacy. We talked yeah, about. Yeah. So he's, he's kind of a favorite. Did you notice anything that was particularly elsewhere about uh, uh, about this film? Well, it definitely stood out more than the Spanish Prisoner for the cinematography. Dramatically, it a, yeah, it had a great look to it. Um, it was shot uh, cinemascope. They they went and shot this uh, two point three five to one, so they had the really wide uh, framing for everything in this film, and it really. Uh, you know, I don't know if they needed it, but I really, I always enjoy that. I enjoy seeing the CinemaScope films, and it looked, it just looked pretty. Well, it looks, it looks like a movie. You know what yeah. I mean? Like an, a movie with a capital M. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it takes you, takes you back. Well, and that's exactly what, you know, the Spanish prisoner did just, I mean, I, I could see that he was doing things in there, but it never, it never jumped out to me going, oh, there's, this is a real movie. This is real cinema. Mm-hmm. I can really, you know, get a sense of everything that's going on here in this beautiful world or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. Elsewhere brings that out. I mean, there will be blood, all the, all the Paul Thomas Anderson films that he does, just all these films that he does where he really makes um, beautiful images to help tell the story. You know, that's an interesting, interesting um, thing that Mamet actually said and it it speaks to him as a as a, a storyteller. He said that in film, um, all of the jobs on the film they're all really focused. Like all the people in the jobs are focused on two things. One is their own role, and the other is telling the story. So, like the the costume designer, one thing that they're really going to be focusing on is making amazing costumes that everybody's going to be in. That you know, but the other thing is fitting that into the the context of the story and telling the story through that. Um, the editor, he says, is the only person who really only is there to tell the story. And so, um, you know, he was speaking how uh, important he feels the editing is in a film because that's the one person who 
finally drops all of that other focus on all of their own sorts of roles. Like Robert Ellswood obviously is focusing on creating very beautiful images, very interesting images to look at and telling the story. The editor is taking those images and only picking the ones that work best in the context of the story because he's only there to tell the story. That's, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, so. I, I think you know. I think your your point is um, uh, well taken. That that so much about uh, you know Elswit's other work is to take big, take big stories and tell them bigly. You know, tell them on a grand mm-hmm. scale. And and I think Red Belt. One of the things I like so much about it is that it, it operates very much in contrast to that. It operates very much in close ups. It operates very much in 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 you know. It's that same sort of uh, scrappy. Uh, connection to um, physicality that you know the fighters end up having with each other you know the close-ups on the slugs to the gut and the the grappling the um, the you know much more sort of realistic fighting style that we that we sometimes see and sometimes don't see um, just because of the way the camera is is moving uh, and the way the film is cut together, I've already sort of highlighted my favorite, you know, which is that that final fight scene, um, which is, I think, uh, both a, a testament to editing uh, as, as much as it is to the actual uh, movement of the camera around the sequence in that alleyway. But and see, I thought the fight scenes were, I, I thought they were shot beautifully. Um, I, I was torn was between where they was there something about the way they were edited that didn't work for me or was there something about the way that Mamet maybe directed them that didn't work for me I couldn't quite put my finger on it that they didn't feel as um, gosh, I don't know what the word would be I don't know if it's kinetic or just the way that the the I could easily understand the, all the things that were happening. I don't think I, I quite enjoyed the fight scenes as much as the other elements of the film, um, but I enjoyed the I enjoyed looking at the fight scenes. I just don't think that they they got me as excited as I wanted them to. But you know, I agree with you, and I think I, I would be interested in your perspective. Wait a month and watch it again, because this that's one of those things that grew on me. I rem, I remember very much not not connecting with the fight scenes the first time I saw it and and I think it's it's partially because I wanted this to be my expectation was I wanted this to be more of a fight film and w- w- the connection I wanted to have to uh, to the fights w- was the same connection that I feel like I had with the born identity you know it was that it was as as we moved toward the jiggly monkey shaky cam um, you know we we sort of get in more of that brute force uh as you say that kind of kinetic feel and this film isn't now because it's not about the fighting and it's almost like the cinematography and the editing of the fight scenes in particular are um they celebrate the fact that this is not a fight film you're not going to get the whole fight you're not going to see the whole fight in fact in one of the most important fights in the film we're going to show you most of it through a security camera from high above right and right. and that's all you're going to get. You're going to get yeah. that, and you're going to get people talking about it. And that's all. Yeah. And I, right. to me, that grew on me in a, in a, in a very real way. Yeah. No, I, so. I can see that. I can see that. All right. What else? Well, I'm sure you always have some. You have, uh, what, I bet, what, two more things? Uh, I have, I don't know, probably ten more things. Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, I, I do think that, you know, in this brief mammoth series i think it's important just to talk a little bit about mammoth and his story 
because I, I mean, I, I, you know, he's, I, I couldn't find a whole lot about him. I don't know if he just is kind of more like as far as his, his personal life and stuff, if he doesn't really, there's not that much out there, but it, he's one of those people who began as a playwright and, you know, he wrote a number of plays that, uh, you know, did really well for himself. I mean, I mean his first published play was 1970 and uh, you know he is what is he right now 65 years old um so his first published play was 1970 and he wrote a number of plays including you know sexual perversity in chicago which was adapted um in the mid 80s as uh, about last night and again um, next year and yeah right next year that's right oh. did they change the title or is it going to be about last night no, it's yeah. about last night yeah okay that's interesting um, American Buffalo, uh, like we talked about last week, the Revenge of the Space Pandas, um, and and then he started getting into. He actually had, I guess, he had an interest in the film industry, and you know, it's it is a different way of telling stories. But in the seventies, he did write the script for The Verdict, and uh, um, interestingly, the Postman Always Rings Twice, the um, the uh, remake of that film. He ended up getting hired to write that in 1981. And then after that, he finally sold the script for The Verdict and uh, was nominated for his first Oscar for that. And then he went on to, uh, I, I think Red Belt is his 10th film that he's directed. Let's see, he did House of Games in 87, was his first film that he directed. And then Things Change, Homicide, Oleana, the Spanish Prisoner, The Winslow Boy, State in Maine, Heist, Spartan, and Red Belt. And then just earlier this year, he directed Phil Spector, the TV movie for HBO mm-hmm. about uh, the famous uh, record producer with uh, Al Pacino. So, you know, he hasn't done a lot of films, and he's done a lot of plays over the years. I mean, ever from 1970, he's still doing plays all the way up through last year, 2012. So he's, he's a guy who's tapped into those two worlds, and he also is just an author. So he's a really interesting guy who clearly is interested in writing. Um, he, you know, he, oh, and I didn't mention, he also writes a number of films that, uh, you know, we've talked about on the show, like Ronin and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find him uh, a really interesting storyteller, and I like the way he tells his stories. And I think he's one of those writers that stands out in the world of writers as uh, somebody like uh, Aaron Sorkin, or um, I'm trying to think of like just other great playwrights. I mean, he's somebody who really stands out as somebody who has tapped into a way to tell stories and a voice for his characters that yes, while it feels like it's, it's mammoth coming out of them as opposed to like individual character voices, there's something so natural about the way that, that they speak in that, in that mammoth speak that it's, it is really appealing. And I think that, uh, he's going to be one of those people who will always kind of have a place in our consciousness because of that. You know, he's, I, I think when I think ab- uh, about what Mamet kind of brings to uh, actors, um, I, I compare him really easily, sort of effortlessly to you know some some that we've talked about, some you know Woody Allen, uh, mm-hmm. Preston Sturgis. Uh, you know, I think about uh, Neil Simon in particular. Neil Simon is another one of those that uh, that Absolutely. I feel like has that that great connection across stage and screen. Uh, uh, you know, um, I I look at uh, you know Mel Brooks. Uh, and, uh, you know, John Huston and, and like these have, these are writers with, um, you know, 
perhaps uh, too overtly uh, classic voices that that are are sort of their natural tells. Yeah. Uh, but but they make them uh, you know they make them just so much more interesting to watch because you're you know for me watching you know these actors on this screen is 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 watching Mamet's take on life and it's his take on life his that that's the affinity that i have with with my relationship with him as a creator and and uh, it it has been interesting watching i think just these two movies back to back um particularly to see how much i love mammoth and didn't love spanish prisoner again you know i mean i i i found that reaction i still uh, i love a lot about you know mammoth and the language but i just didn't didn't jive with that movie i was i was worried in watching this film again that maybe my my opinion of it was was jaded but i, I still get that um that sort of electricity that i get with um with this film and that uh i get to see i i really get a feeling like i'm i'm sitting in his head as as i'm watching him observe this universe i get that same feeling when i read you know certain novelists uh and and certain you know writers of nonfiction, you know malcolm gladwell or you know stephen king or you know it's that connection that that i am most interested in their uh, in their take on the universe around them as a result of my relationship with them over time. And and he's an interesting director. Listening to the actors talk about him, his style of directing is basically, he, well, first of all, he talked about Tim Allen uh, and how you know Tim Allen came on board this film and how Tim Allen was really wanted to be in this film. And Tim Allen's agent called uh, Mamet and said, look, you know, I know there's this part for this aging actor, and Tim Allen is interested. And he's like, well, you, does he, he knows it's not a funny part, right? This isn't a comedy. And he's like, oh, no, no, he knows, he knows. Uh, and it's not a big part. It's just a, a small part. I mean, it's a good part, but it's just small, and there's not as much to it. He's like, oh, yeah, he knows. I'm like, and, and so it really took him aback. And then, and, but Tim Allen really wanted to be in this. And then Tim Allen, who is so used to being in films where you know, he's a funny guy. I mean, he's a comedian. He's always used to improv and cracking up and, mm-hmm. and, and, and throwing lines in there. And, uh, and uh, he had to learn quickly that Mamet doesn't let you improv at all. And what Mamet had to say is like, if I can't read, write better than they can improvise, they should just go home. <laughs> So he's just like, if you're going to improvise, I'm going to be the one who's doing the improvising, not you. Because because if you're doing it, then clearly I'm not doing my job. And so it's... Did you, you know, should... I, I don't know. Do you, have you read the his memo to the writers of The Unit? Which is a show um, he was... He, I wrote. Yeah. You know, that's something I read ages ago. Yeah. And I, I can't remember it now, but I do remember... Um, I, I remember it, and I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. I think just the way he talks. First of all, he writes it in all caps. Uh, right. But but like it he's is screaming. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the whole thing is screaming. But um, uh, this is. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd like to read just a, a passage of it. Uh, this one section that that actually goes into lowercase. So, um, and it's it's laced with obscenity. So I'll I'll do my best to. Uh, any, uh, let's say, jerk, as above, can write, but Jim, if we don't assassinate the prime minister in the next scene, all Europe will be engulfed in flame. We are not getting paid to realize that the audience needs this information to understand the next scene, but to figure out how to write the scene before us, such that the audience will be interested in what happens next. Yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, you reiterate. And I respond, 
figure it out. How does one strike the balance between withholding and vouchsafing uh, uh, information? Vouchsafing. 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 That was very French. <laughs> that was very French. That's right. Information. That is the essential task of the dramatist. And the ability to do that is what separates you from the lesser species in their blue shirt suits. Figure it out. Start every time with this inviolable rule. The scene must be dramatic. It must start because the hero has a problem, and it must culminate with the hero finding him or herself either thwarted or educated that another way exists. And to me, you look at that passage, that's the master class of Red Belt. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at his, uh, at his mission as a writer, as a dramatist, right, uh, he just demonstrated in this film his ideal structure of the heroic journey. Mm-hmm. And he directs this way, too. Like the actors say, he doesn't stop like after takes and talk to you about, well, let's talk about your backstory. Let's, let's figure out why is your character doing this sort of thing. He, his whole focus is on the plot. What, what is it that your character is doing in the, in the story here, and where are you trying to get to, and where are you coming from, uh, and why... Why are you trying to do that? And that's it. That's all he cares about is what is happening in context of the plot. You're the actor. You figure out what it is that, that you know, your character is going through in your backstory. Figure all that out yourself. I don't care. I just want you to have that in your mind as you're getting from point A to point B. That's really all he cares about. It's interesting. It's, it's a really interesting way to tell stories. Very, very I, you know, this has been, uh, in that respect, it's been a really fun, uh, uh, fun look at David Mamet and, um, you know, a, a fun look at, at a, uh, you know, a curmudgeonly and opinionated director and writer uh, at the helm. I, I've really had a good time looking at this stuff. I can't wait to do more. Well, we'll have to because, uh, you know, as I, I sent you that link, I thought it was interesting that there's this unofficial honor code trilogy that Mamet did with Heist, Spartan, and Red Belt. Yeah. Um, which I thought was kind of a, an interesting little thing to find. I, I haven't seen Spartan. I have seen Heist, but like I said last week, I haven't seen it in ages. But you know what this one person said on, uh, on um, RogerEbert.com, this trilogy features three protagonists who are trying to live their lives by a particular set of morals and ethics. Specifically, the principles of the protagonists in question are put to the test by various machinations in the narrative, and the protagonists must choose to either remain true to their ideals or acquiesce to the demands of the ever-changing modern world around them. So it's interesting that there's this little unofficial honor code trilogy that Mammoth did. So, you know, there's certainly an opportunity for us to come back and do some more. I think we should. Let's do it. Yes, indeed. Uh, where do we go from here? Uh, well, we got to talk about numbers. This film really did poorly. <laughs> oh. it, uh, uh, yeah, you know, like I said, it's it, they didn't. It's not a film that's easy to market. They couldn't figure out how to sell it to people. They were advertising it on Spike TV. Those people didn't want to come see it because it's you know it's too thinky. It's a thinker. It's a thinkery sort of film. That what they call I, I that in the, the industry? They, I was just going to say, that, that's an industry <laughs> term, right? It is. It's, this is very thinkery. <laughs> I'll have to add that to our, our, our lexicon oh, on our website. <laughs> um, so it just didn't do well. The budget on this I found to be $7 million. 
and uh, I couldn't see, I couldn't find what they spent on Princeton advertising, but probably not a whole lot. Um, it made domestically two point three million. Internationally, it only made about three hundred thirty thousand dollars. So all told, the total gross was about two point six million. Um, so that means. When you look at it uh, adjusted for inflation and all of that, it ended up, uh, it's, it's in the bottom chunk on our list here. This film ended up at, oh, now I just lost it here. Uh, yeah, it's just above Rush as far as, how much, as, as far as how much it ended up losing. It lost about $46,754 per finished minute. There is no accounting for taste. It did saying. better than it also did better than Sunshine and Joe vs. the Volcano and Ronin. Wait, what? Yeah. It did but, better than Ronin? Well, Ronin's budget was 55 million. Oh, so yeah. So it definitely had a bigger budget to work with. And Ronin, what was its adjusted uh, let's see, total gross on Ronin was was about 70 million. Oh yeah, but Ronin they spent quite a bit more on Prince Prince advertising, advertising, so. Right. Yeah. So, and again, this isn't factoring in Princeton advertising, so it's a little hard to compare the two. Well, I, you know, I think we liked uh, we liked that Ronin too. Oh, absolutely. Ronin is definitely one that's had uh, a benefit of the cult following in in its afterlife in yeah. the in the video markets. It's it's managed to really find a home. I don't know if Red Belt will ever find that home. Just like Spanish Prisoner, I think they're going to be relegated to kind of the dusty shelves with Oleana and things change. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Man, I know I sound so right. harsh. Don't you I? do. You sound really like that's a heartbreaking <laughs> way to put it. Ah. All right, let's uh, let's flick chart it. All right, head over to flickchart.com/slash the next reel, and you can see our uh, stack rankings of uh, of the films that we have talked about on this uh, on this show. The, if you head over to the Extras tab on the website, you can jump on the Extras menu item, you see it'll take you straight to the Flickchart Top 100, uh, and you can see whether or not Red Belt's going to uh, crack the 100 list here. We'll find out in just a moment. Red Belt or Thank You for Smoking? I'm totally still thank you for smoking. I know. I mean, I, I enjoy Red Belt, but I, I think it's going to end up, for me, if it was just me, it would end up near the bottom of my list. I mean, there's just so many films I like on this list. All right. Well, I'm, I'm with you on thank you for smoking so far. Okay. Red Belt or Miller's Crossing? Red Belt. That's, now, over Miller's Crossing? Yep. yep. Why is that? You're going to have to really sell me on this one because Miller's Crossing, for me, totally wins out. Well, and you know, I like the Miller's Crossing. Uh, obviously, I mean, I'm I'm definitely a fan of the Miller's Crossing, but I, I think that um, there is something about the power of that, uh, of the redemption journey that we get in Red Belt that, uh, to me, is uh, so much more rewarding than, uh, you know, any redemption story in Miller's Crossing. And and I I feel better when I'm finished watching Red Belt, um, and and I can see myself uh, putting uh, putting Red Belt on first. Really? Yeah. If you give me the choice. 
Interesting. I think Chewie is really great in this film. I deeply enjoy watching him uh, on screen in this film. More than more than any other character in Miller's Crossing, I deeply enjoy his his portrayal of this character. I, I you're right. I mean, if it's just for Chewie, I would go with Red Belt. But I think between two convoluted stories, I would absolutely prefer watching Miller's Crossing's convoluted story. I just find it so much more uh, satisfying as a whole. I mean, I think I think the thing that sells Red Belt for me is that last moment. I think there's a lot of uh, just kind of a convoluted plot that I just don't really uh, if you look at it it never comes together at least Miller's Crossing I can put it together after watching it a few times like all those puzzle pieces make sense well I see that I mean I definitely see that but in the end I think the celebration of Red Belt is that it doesn't matter and the Miller's Crossing the celebration of Miller's Crossing is that it does matter and you can do it and we've talked Mm -hmm. about that I mean that's an important element Um, I'll give you Red Belt but only because of Chewie, because he is he is amazing in this film. He's amazing in this film. Oh. All right. All right. All right. Okay. So, dang. Okay. <laughs> what am I going to have to give a, up? God, I, I feel know. like we're just Oh, man. This is getting Red, harder. Everybody. I know. This is going to be hard. Red Belt or Driving Miss Daisy? Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm gonna go driving Miss Daisy on this one. Wow. Okay. I'm surprised that. You... What were you gonna say? I'm driving Miss Daisy. I'm just surprised that you were. I thought you were gonna pull the whole thing with Red Belt again and Chewie and everything. But driving Miss Daisy is an amazing character film. Exactly. And that's exactly. I mean, based on the same logic, I cannot make the same case. Right. Um. So. Okay. Red Belt or side effects. Oh. <laughs> Red Belt. Yeah, Red Belt. Yeah, I, it's not, not a really, Side effects is just a... Not a really hard one. Red Belt or It Happened One Night. I would go It Happened One Night because if I were to pick the two, I would absolutely go with the film that is just a pure joy to watch. Well, It Happened One Night is more of a joy to watch, certainly, than, mm-hmm. uh, than, than Red Belt. And Frank Capra is... Well, he's joyous. It's hard to go wrong with it happened one night. It, 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 I'm going to give you it happened one night, too. All right. All right. Red Belt or The Professional? Red Belt. <laughs> you surprised? Yeah, I, I am surprised by that, and I'm sur- I am a little surprised that I'm leaning toward The Professional. <laughs> what? I know. I know. What? I just... I, I don't I don't understand myself sometimes like like some of these old people <laughs> like the professor going to the match. Oh, man. I know. I know. Maybe it's Gary Oldman. Oh no. God, you're mm. <laughs> He was really good. He was really good. I mean, he's he's pretty pretty over the top in that. He's like so. yeah, he's like show stealing. He is. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm gonna, I can't believe that. Like, I'm really torn, but uh, I'll, I'll give that to you. The problem is that once we say that... Uh, it's, it's there forever. Well, it's kind of there forever. All right. Go ahead. Let's see. You see what happened. Roll the dice on this one. Okay. You go Red ahead. Belt. This is on you. Uh, here we got Elswit on Elswit. Red Belt or the Bourne Legacy? Uh-huh. This is on you right here. This is what <laughs> I was afraid of. <sighs> 
Oh, oh maybe it's Gary Oldman, he said. Yeah, that's right. We would not have had this conversation if you had gone with what I wanted to do. I know. It's true. It's true. I, I mean, if it's just for putting something on to just watch it and enjoy it, it would be the Bourne Legacy because it's just, a, I mean, even though it's the weakest of the Bourne series, it still is a lot of fun to watch. Red Belt is going to require my patience and to watch it, I will have to really be in the right frame of mind. And I, I just don't think I'm going to be in the, in the frame of mind to watch Red Belt that many more times in my life. All right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that, if that's what we're, we're judging it by. I think that in terms of the strength of the, of the, of, you know, of the important legacy is not a character film. <laughs> right. Uh, and so, I, you know, you get that same sort of action thriller vibe, but in a way that has a lot more substance to it. And uh, that makes me sad that we're leaning toward Born Legacy in that respect. But I'm, I think I'm with you. All right. All right. Well, there you go. Number 82 out of 120. All right. That feels okay. Yeah. At least it's ahead of side effects and Prometheus. <laughs> it is ahead of those two films, yes. It is ahead of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That makes me sad. That's a sign that maybe we should re-rank indie. Uh, we we do. Need we have to do some, some like the first like forty films on our list. We need to re-rank. I think. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of re-ranking we need to do. Yeah. One of these days. One we'll of these days. Big, listen to us rank our re-rank our films show. <laughs> Seven hour epic. <laughs> I'm sure um, everyone will be thrilled to listen to that. So. This was a good show. Where do we go from here, Andrew? What's our we're, next we're, series? Well, Time like we already about. talked about, we're going to jump into doing some uh, international films. You know, we haven't touched on a whole lot of uh, international films yet, uh, or at least ones that uh, speak in foreign languages. We certainly have done some some British films. So this is our chance to uh, to jump into some other languages. So we're going to start with Intacto, which is a, a fantastic film from Spain, and then... The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is, uh, you know, that's a tough, powerful film to watch. And then we're going to do Run, Lola, Run, Yee Yee, a one and a two, and then end with City of God. So it's going to be a nice little series. Nice series. Uh, and then right in there, we should say, just start get, get ready for it, because the next film board, you know, we just did Thor. The next film board is going to be our, what is now with this episode, going to be our annual mm-hmm. Hobbit. Uh, episode we're going to do desolation of smog in 52 frames per second seizure round uh so that should be uh, that should be good good show too that comes up in a four four weeks four or five weeks something like that yeah middle of middle right in the middle of december, of december. Yeah. yeah uh okay hey good show that's do any, it do you have yeah. anything else nothing you're good I think that's it. Yeah. Oh, no, one last thing. I did have one last thing I was going to tell you. Yeah. The magician in this film is an actual magician. Um, his name is, uh, what is it? Cyril. Uh, Cyril Takayama. Yeah. And he's an actual magician. He's a Japanese-American who, uh, I think he was born here and then he moved to Japan, but he's been doing magic since he's like seven or eight years old. He's just always been fascinated with magic. And all of the tricks he does in the film are all real. There's no CGI or anything. So even, and I swear, I, I watched his stuff frame by frame because I was convinced that there was uh, cinematic trickery going on. But even like the little marble trick where he, he has the black marble and in his hand and he switches it and it's the white marble, 
that's all like they do all of that like he does all of that right there yeah it's it it's pretty it's pretty stellar and the uh the blu-ray of this actually has like a little five minute meet cyril sort of thing where he just does all these like crazy like cigarette tricks and stuff and it's just like so much fun to watch so <laughs> absolutely check that out if you can and uh you can probably go to youtube and look up cyril takiyama i don't know i haven't i haven't looked but if i find one all we can put it in the show notes yeah and just see some of his magic tricks the stuff that he does because it's pretty amazing well, and you know, I don't think we ever said, since we've been talking about films with Ricky Jay, and then Ricky Jay's um, part in this was not, uh, you know, particularly notable for me. I, you know, we didn't no. say anything about it. Uh, but we should say that we, we've we talked a number of times about his, uh, about the, the documentary uh, that, uh, about him. Right, uh, right. Which now the name escapes me, but it just, it hit a couple of weeks ago on iTunes that you can now download it. And um, so just search for Ricky Jay and, and you'll see it. Um, it, it's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's um, this, a deceptive it? practice. Deceptive, deceptive practice. Deceptive practice yeah. the, mysteries the mysteries and mentors of Ricky J. Yeah, right. Good show. Good show. All right. So yeah, it's a nice little thing having the magic stuff thrown into this. So yeah, yeah. fun. All right, I gotta go to bed. All right, I'm looking forward to our death match, Pete. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.